Welcome to Buemo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion and culture with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Jesse Thorne. Jesse is a lot of things. He's the creator and host of NPR's show Bullseye, the founder of the acclaimed menswear website Put This On, and he even runs his own podcast network, MaximumFun.org. Jesse and I spoke about his early life growing up in California and how he fell into the world of radio. I'm sure you won't be surprised after you hear his voice. A true explorer of the craft, Jesse is a perfect example of someone who makes their passion their career. Case in point, his love of menswear led him to create Put This On, one of the most popular places on the internet for menswear connoisseurs, and even a web series, which in my opinion was ahead of its time. We get the entire story on today's episode, and I think you'll love it. Let's do it. Before we get started, I want to talk about your shirts. Let me tell you about Taylor Stitch. Based out of San Francisco, Taylor Stitch makes clothing you'll love to wear in that never wears out. Look, I've owned multiple Taylor Stitch Oxfords over the years, and they are my go-to shirt company. If you don't have a blue, a white, or a bangle stripe Oxford in your closet, you're doing it wrong. I wear the Jack, a durable fabric with a modern button-down collar and the perfect length that fits for wearing both tucked and untucked. It's the kind of shirt that makes your wardrobe better and your life simpler. Visit taylorstitch.com forward slash blammo and you'll know what I mean. This is, uh, this is really special to me. Thank you. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Yeah. So I know, I know two personalities of you. I know the, the Jesse Thorne of, you know, National Public Radio and Maximum Fun, which I guess now is one and the same. Uh, you can correct me on that? Yeah, Maximum Fun bought National Public Radio. <laughs> and, and then I know Jesse Thorne of Put This On, which is... I didn't. Re- I mean, it's the same Jesse Thorne, but my first interaction with you was was put this on. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people. Well, I just did a Q and A because I did a show called The Turnaround, where I interviewed interviewers about interviewing, and I did an AMA on Reddit about it. And literally, one guy was just like, "Hey, uh, weird question, but is the Turnaround Jesse Thorne the same as the Put This On guy?" um i think that no matter how confused you may be going from knowing me from put this on to knowing me from npr or from my comedy podcasts or whatever um it cannot match the amount of confusion uh that an npr person has when they found out when they find out that a radio guy has a a menswear website like the amount of bafflement (laughs) The amount of bafflement that an executive in Washington, D.C. at NPR has when they find out that uh, I spend, you know, 30% of my time running a menswear website. Like, that is could not, there's literally nothing in the world that could be more foreign to (laughs) people that work at NPR than a guy who, like, they cannot connect those dots at all. Maybe if it was about, if I had a show about football, but even if I had a show about football, like, it's just the least NPR-y. I, you could, I could be doing a podcast, that, uh, like a blog that was exclusively reviews of Volvo station wagons, and the NPR people would be like, yeah, sure, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but menswear to the NPR crowd is, is very baffling. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, when, when you think of, so first off, you had mentioned The Turnaround, which is your most recent podcast that you were doing, and I've been listening to it. It's fantastic. Um, Thank you really 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 good and it's 
I'm sure you've had plenty of other people in the past that have been like, yeah, I've always wanted to know, like, what is Ira Glass thinking before he does these interviews? And, you know, the fact that you got to talk to Terry Gross, whom is just a god among all, uh, it's it was they were really special and very inspiring. So congrats on that. Um, Thank you. I actually just talked to Dick Cavett this morning for a, what will become a special bonus episode of the show. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's before, but like to try to keep myself on track, um, you obviously you were doing radio before put this on. So I just wanted to start there. How in the, like, how did you get introduced to radio and, and what made you, you know, other than this, this very silky voice you have, what made you go into that career and field? Well, I went to arts high school in San Francisco and did acting for, you know, five hours a day, five days a week for my whole high school career. Acting? Yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, wow, cool. You know, I went there in part because I enjoyed acting, but substantially because I would have got my ass beat every day at the (laughs) neighborhood public high school. Um, like I, I grew up in a, in what at the time was a pretty rough neighborhood. And, um, you know, I mean, I was like a, a skinny feminine white guy and that was not happening. So I went to arts high school basically to keep from getting beat up. Um, nobody gets beat up (laughs) at arts high school. Um, and I mean, like maybe if you're not goth enough and you try to go to a goth party or something, but, um, you don't have any clove cigarettes or whatever, (laughs) but. I, one of the things that I learned when I was in theater school was that I was not a great actor and also that I did not care enough about acting to become a professional actor. Like one of the main thing, it was a pretty serious program. And some of my, some of my high school classmates are, are successful professional actors now. Uh, Someone just won a Tony for, um, uh, for being in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. A year or two oh, wow. ago, um, uh, my friend Aya Cash is one of the stars of a great show called You're the Worst on FX. So, like, my colleagues were, you know, while we were all 16 year old dopes, um, were relatively serious. And I could tell that I was not as talented as they were. Right. But I really liked performing and, um, you know, the arts. So, when I got to college, I started doing improv. Um, I really enjoyed that and just liked the fact that you were allowed to be funny, which in acting school you generally aren't. Um, and I was looking for other stuff to do. And, that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an old millennial or sometimes lately they've been coming up with new names. For a while we were Generation Y, but then someone said Xennial or Xennial. Um, oh, that's a rough but like, one. <laughs> yeah, I was born in 1981. So like when I was in college, it was like just the very last days of normal people can't afford to buy film cameras that uh, shoot a diff- decent picture. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Like it was just the very, like if I was five years younger, it was the era of for 800 bucks, you can buy a video camera that shoots uh, semi-pro quality uh, film. Yeah. Um. So... I ended up at the radio station because there was no, 
you know, I just thought it was the, it was the, it was the place that was available. Like I didn't want to do theater acting. I knew that. And there was no TV and in the film department, because of the thing that I just mentioned, you had to be a film major and you only got your hands on a camera for uh, like half of your senior year. And so what that meant was, you know, it was just before everyone could just make a video for YouTube. Uh, like radio was the thing that was available. I like literally went to the radio station and I was like, oh, that's it. Like literally the, the feeling that I had was looking at a, looking at how an audio board worked, seeing someone work it and being just like, oh, so up is louder and down is quieter. Right. (laughs) Uh, I I can manage that. Like in my mind, it was so complicated, you know, Uh, I was like, oh no, I could do that. So I just kind of recruited my favorite, uh, dudes from the dorms. Um, and started doing it. And I literally have been on the air every week since then, um, without interruption. I mean, you know, occasional reruns, but I've been responsible for filling at least an hour of airtime on the radio since I was 19 every week. Well, but so there's a cosign though that, that comes in. I mean, cause you know, with all due respect, I have a few friends who have done radio that they started doing in college. And, you know, like the stereotype of, of college radio is like dead air, dead air. Let me find this pavement album. And <laughs> it's just but like you turn and evolve into. Having your own show on NPR, what did was there something yeah. before that? I mean, did you I mean, when I think of people kind of like going out there and hustling in terms of the radio world, are you like sending demos of your radio show, like asking for it to be circulated to NPR? I mean, I, excuse my ignorance say I'm just wondering. No, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like I, to first of all, to be clear, I did college radio in Santa Cruz, California. So it was more like dead air, dead air. Let me find that Buju Banton album. Okay. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, like I, we did all kinds of different stuff in the early days. Uh, and the show was me and my friend Jordan and my friend Gene and Gene these days is a producer on big brother. Um, he still works in, uh, he still works in entertainment and Jordan, I do a show called Jordan Jesse go with, and he's a professional comedy writer. Yeah. Which is an excellent show. I love that yeah, show. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, oh, I thought you were complimenting the shows that he had worked on, uh, uh, no, Jordan Jesse. I don't go. mean to be immodest and say yeah, yeah, yeah. When you say that's an excellent show, no, it's it's cool. I mean, it's you got You got to recognize the good stuff you're doing. <laughs> so anyway, we we did all kinds of stuff. I mean, we would like write sketches. We would um, do call in games. We did we did everything in the world, and we ended up kind of doing interviews because a we were astonished that people would agree to do interviews with us, and it was exciting. I mean, it was just cool. Like, you know, we were 19 years old and it was like, oh yeah, we're interviewing Dick Dale, the king of the surf guitar, or we're interviewing oh <laughs> Matt Besser, the founder of the Upright Citizens Brigade, or um, right. Todd Barry, or Louis C.K., um, Sarah Silverman. Um, so we thought it was cool that people would agree to talk to us if we slightly tricked them. And B, it was like a great way to fill, fill time. Like we realized that writing an hour of material and an hour was the shortest time slot that we could get, uh, writing an hour of material or producing an hour of this American lifestyle material or whatever were really, really hard. And an interview was half an hour, uh, without that much work. Right. So, (laughs) 
So yeah, so we did that. And when I graduated from school, my co-hosts moved to LA and started working in the entertainment industry. And I moved back home to San Francisco, but I kept doing the show. I would borrow my mom's car and drive to Santa Cruz, do the show, drive back. And, um, and literally at the time, the biggest challenge in my life was that was like 20 or $30 worth of gas. It was kind of a long drive. Yeah, and, I was going to say. And that was coming up with that money was really hard for me after college. Um, and it was hard to say that it was worth that hundred bucks a month. But basically what happened was podcasting got invented. I started podcasting right away, built an audience via podcast. And somebody from Public Radio International saw it on the podcast charts and just gave, gave the show a listen and said, that is pretty good. Do you think we could do something elsewhere? And at the time I was sending the show both to Santa Cruz and to like a couple of weird, there was a station in Walla Walla, Washington and a station in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where they were like freeform stations where the program director had heard about the show and just sent me an email. So I right. was quote unquote syndicating the show even then. And um, right around then, a guy who was the program director of WNYC reached out to me and said, could we run in New York, said, could we run uh, like a limited series on, you know, Sunday nights of the best of your show? Because I heard the podcast and I liked it. Um, and That's so, incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was all, that's totally, that was totally incredible. And like, I, on the one hand, all of those things are totally remarkable and astonishing. And then along the way, I also started doing the show from home rather than the college radio station. And it started being broadcast on the NPR station in Santa Cruz rather than on the college radio station in Santa Cruz. And this show is The Sound of Young America? Yeah, which is now my NPR show Bullseye. I mean, we changed the title along the way, but uh, right. continuous, continuous run. But like, this is over years. So like, it sounds like amazing leaps forward, but two things I want to emphasize about the story. First of all, most of the time I was despondent about the possibilities of ever getting anywhere. And that's A. And so it took years and years and years and years to get any of these things to work. And B, even when they happened, I realized that it was impossible to make money at. So <laughs> like when I got a distribution deal with PRI, they sent me a rate schedule, like their projections for how much money I would make. And I was like, it says here that at the end of year five, after a long building process of station carriage, I'll be taking home $26,000 a year. Is that right? And they're like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, how does anyone like, have a radio show? Don't spend it one place. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Um, so I had a job until about uh, now, I guess about 10 years ago when I moved to Los Angeles. And um, so that was, you know, almost 10 years of having a job and doing the show by myself in my house or at the college radio station. Um, and even after I got, I, I, even after I stopped having a job, I didn't, I was like, I was making poverty amounts of money, even doing freelance work on the side for another five years. So it's only been like, it's only been like five or six years now that I make a living. And even in that context, the public radio thing is not how I make my living. Like, I think at this point that has a net positive cash flow to me. Like, I think it brings in more money than I spend on it, but <laughs> not by much. Right. And I guess this is where, and we can jump to put this on a bit here. This is maybe where you got so good at thrifting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, when I was in, when I was in high school, I 
grew up, I would take the 26 Valencia uh, to high school um, uh, and from high school to my house in, or my mom's apartment in the mission in San Francisco. And where the bus dropped off, there was a Salvation Army and I would go in that Salvation Army after school every day. And this was the late 90s. Right. So I would buy, um, I would buy anything I found that was from the uh, 40s, 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. and sell it. Um, first, I would sell it to, I mean, this was the height of swings, right? Okay. So I would, I would sell it to a vintage clothing store that was in Noy Valley, or I would, uh, later I, I started selling it on eBay. Um, and that's kind of like how I made my pocket money. And that was just, you know, my mom is... My mom is still uh, a part-time antiques dealer, and it was just always, always meant, most of my clothes always came from the thrift store. We were also usually broke. So most of my clothes always came from the thrift store, and I just, the idea that you go to the thrift store and see what you can find for entertainment was always on the table. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, that that's really interesting to me because, you know, first off, while, you know, we kind of sped through the first part of your story, there's it's there was a certain talent obviously that existed, you know, because I I've listened to the Sound of Young America um it, before I even put together the fact that put this on was also you. And you have the radio voice, you have the radio candor, you have, I mean, you know, and then you also have this kind of like hustler mentality that's that's also a part of you from going into to thrift stores and kind of like, you know, buying things, flipping things, finding a, a way to, to make this extra money. Where do you think in terms of the, the hustling aspect came from? Was that was that like from your, your parents with the antique dealing or was there? Yeah, no, that's. That's a hundred percent for my mom. So, you know, like I grew up, I, I don't want to, uh, present myself as having grown up poor, um, because I know what actual poverty is and I did not grow up in actual poverty. I never wondered where my food was going to come from and I was never, never without a place to live. And, um, I got to go to private school, albeit as right. a scholarship kid for part of my childhood. And, um, you know, I, I had a lot of I had a lot of uh, economic privileges. However, um, you know, I I was <laughs> my parents made a, a small enough amount of money that I when I was going to public school in high school, I qualified for free lunch, um, even though I was usually bringing lunch from home because the free lunch was nasty. But I would go <laughs> get the free lunch so I could have the chocolate milk. But, nice. <laughs> um, but like, so we were, we were, uh, you know, very lower middle class, very lower middle mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. And my mom in particular, I split my time between my parents and my mom in particular is just a full on hustler, just hustling all the time. Like my mom is the worst long-term financial planner on earth. She's <laughs> She still has no retirement savings and she's had a, you know, uh, like a job. She's been a college professor since I was in my late teens. Okay. Um, but like, she's still like, I've, I, at some point she's going to, I know she's going to just break her leg, knock on wood 
then I'm just going to have to support her the rest of her life. Um, but she has always made ends meet by hustling in one form or another. So when I was That's a kid, awesome. yeah, like, so when I was a kid, she worked retail. She, she was a clerk at an antique store on Fillmore Street in San Francisco, which is a pretty fancy neighborhood and has some fancy thrift stores. So a lot of my clothes came out of those fancy thrift stores. Like there's a symphony thrift store and an opera thrift store. Um, or there was, I think the symphony thrift store closed, but, um, Uh so like, uh, and you know, she had always, she had had a store in Washington DC before, before she knew me. And, uh, you know, like she's always just been, she's always been somebody who like all her assets are in the stuff in her house. She does what she has to do to make ends meet. I'm 85% sure she was a drug dealer in the seventies. Um, like, you know, she's a, she's a hustler, but she's also always lives on the edge. Right. Right. So my expectation in my life was always from my parents who were people who always did what they believed in with their lives. You know, my father was a career activist, like a professional activist. Oh, wow. Um, uh, he helped found an organization called Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which still exists um, today. Um, but he was a professional, mostly peace activist, but he, when I was a kid, he worked in uh, the independent living movement uh, with a guy called Ed Roberts for a long time. And that's no kind of way to make money, but it is, you know, I never doubted the idea. Like one of the privileges that I had as a kid was I never doubted that I would go to college and I never doubted that I would, that it would be okay for me to do something that I cared about as my job and my career, because my parents always had, and I knew that I could figure out a way to make my $25,000 a year or $30,000 a year and get by. Yeah. So like I, I always just did what I could, but part of that was, I feel like a a lot of people who have the idea that they should be able to do whatever they want to do. Don't also have the other part of it, which is the idea that it's their responsibility to figure out how to make a living from it. I feel like I meet a lot of people who have an artistic mentality who feel uh, that the world owes them financial support because they are doing the thing they care about the most in the world. Uh, That's an astute Um, observation. (laughs) Which I think is, like, I'm not as opposed, like, I think that art is really important and I... Agreed. So if that's, if that's your worst quality, then it's not the worst quality in the history of the world. But because I never, I, I knew that my parents would never be able to support me once I became an adult. They could barely support me when I was a kid. Um, and I knew that I would end up probably supporting my parents to some extent. Um, I knew that like that wasn't a choice for me. Right. So it's sort of the confluence of these two things. One is the expectation that I'll do something that I care about uh, and it makes me happy. And the other is the expectation that if I do that, I'm responsible for figuring out how to make a living from it. Um, And it wasn't like you have to become rich doing this, but it was like you have to figure out how to pay for it. Yeah. Like if you want to do something, you have to figure out how to pay for it. It might be you figure out how to make really good money doing something that you like less, but you only do it 15 hours a week. Or it might be that you make medium money 30 hours a week and then work on something for free for 10 hours. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so basically through from my college days until five or seven years ago, basically what I did was just work all the time for almost no money, but on stuff that I liked and it was okay. I mean, I wasn't like killing myself. I was doing stuff I enjoyed yeah. and, and, and the almost no money wasn't no money. So like, you know, if you don't have kids and you're healthy, uh, even in San Francisco and Los Angeles where I lived, you can get by on $18,000 a year, you know? Sure. You can live fine. Yeah. You, 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 you're, it's okay. And I knew that because in my childhood, while we never had money for stuff, we totally did have money for stuff. Like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we were broke in general, but like I said, we would never, I was never worried that we couldn't, that we weren't going to be able to eat. And, I, you know, I got to go places and do things. That's that's really cool. I'm glad that you also expressed that that difference in contrast between, you know, what what poor is. Um a friend of mine his his family's Korean and his, you know, he grew up I think in Canada, but his family was, you know, born and all raised in Korea and he used to complain. He was like, "Oh, we're poor." And his and his father would be like, "No, no, no. Poor is is not knowing <laughs> where your food is coming from." He's like, "You're going to eat. You're going to eat every meal. Real poor is not knowing when you're going to eat again." For me, like my father was homeless at times Mm -hmm. before I was born. And my my stepmother, who I grew up with from when I was about, uh, I guess she married my dad when I was like eight, Mm -hmm. seven or eight, something like that. My stepmother was from Belfast in Northern Ireland and came from very large family of which she was the youngest with only one parent during the troubles in Belfast. So she grew up where a classic story from my family is the time that I think it was her sister Catherine tried to take her piece of bacon and they got one piece of meat a week. So like on for Sunday dinner, everybody would get a rasher of bacon, right? They'd get, they'd get a side of bacon or whatever and everybody gets a slice. And her sister tried to take it and my stepmother stabbed her through the hand with a fork <laughs> <laughs> while she was reaching for it. Just like, no way. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so like my stepmother, you know, my stepmother, did, my stepmother's, youngish my stepmother is um she's maybe uh she's i guess she's in her late 50s now okay um it's a baby but boomer my, yeah. but my stepmother grew up without indoor plumbing oh wow you know <laughs> like i think at some point they got indoor plumbing but but she grew up substantially without in without indoor plumbing so like you know, that's, I understand what, and, and also like I grew up a block from the projects, right? In San Francisco, I grew up a block from this, uh, from this project called Valencia Gardens, which a lot, it's a lot nicer now. They turned it into townhomes, but it was a, it was a sort of semi high rise at the time. Okay. And like, on the one hand, I grew up a block from the projects. Like I had to know about, this is how you walk down the street. This is how you make people feel like you're not worth picking on. This is, you know, this is what you do when there's gunshots or when somebody tries to sell you crack or whatever, right? Right. Like, I knew those things. But on the other hand, I didn't live in the projects. Yeah. Um, I lived a block from the project. Right. And I didn't, you know, it wasn't, I didn't have to defend myself every day in the same way. Um, so, you know, it is definitely a different thing. Yeah. And this is question kind of observation here and i'll say this for myself so i grew up in a similar situation as you and i would say my taste uh for luxury and 
nice clothing. I'm going to use air quotes here for nice clothes, and that's basically just like tailored clothing. That really came from the fact that I wasn't really able to have that sort of thing when I was younger. So I associated making it and security with having nice clothes. And I think, honestly, that's where I got a lot of my taste for that. Would you say that that, that's the same for you? Well, it's interesting. I mean, my particular situation is that both of my parents valued those things, albeit in different ways. Mm-hmm. My dad, my dad's idea was if you're going to have a suit, it should be a really good suit. So like my dad always would have one, one Armani suit that he bought at the end of the clearance from Macy's, right? Nice. But, it, but he looked great in it. I mean, my dad's a handsome guy and he would, have, he would have a suit to wear when he wore a suit. And this is from, you know, as I said, the guy, his career was veterans peace activist. Right. So he could have just, he could have just been a bald guy with long hair and a tie-dyed t-shirt or something like that. My mom has almost infinity taste. I mean, my mom is, has more taste in her, in her pinky finger than entire editorial boards of magazines. <laughs> She always had great clothes. I always had great clothes. She made clothes for me when I was little. Like I said, she bought clothes from thrift stores. And, you know, my mom is like fabulous. Mm -hmm. And she did that without, you know, there was certainly no question that we weren't like, well, it's off to the, it's off to the, it's off to the Neiman Marcus to buy some stuff off the mannequins. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, but, you know, my mom is definitely the person who, I mean, we went to, so my mom's goddaughter lives in Mallorca. Oh, wow. And, and my mom, one of my mom's like life closest friends is, was her father, a guy called Jakob Lind. And so she, we went to Mallorca when I was a kid because my mom's goddaughter was getting married. I mean, that's, first of all, what, what like lower middle-class kid gets to go to Mallorca? Like to begin with, that was a big deal, right? Yeah. That's but very incredible. We had shoes made in Mallorca. Oh, okay. Um, and like, that was when Mallorca was not yet, uh, you know, that's 35 years ago, 30 years ago when Mallorca was not yet a luxury travel destination. It was still sort of an, an, a borderline third world arts colony. Mm-hmm. It was a matter of you can get shoes made for $80. But that was like the kind of thing that was going down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, I like, I was definitely like a kid that was always wearing a costume. I was just on Facebook and, and my childhood best friend, Jody shared this picture of me. There were like seven. Okay. And maybe even six. He's wearing like a jean jacket and a giant's hat and jeans and sneakers. And then I'm wearing like a spaceman suit. (laughs) Like every element of my entire outfit is some crazy nonsense, right? So I always thought that was fun. And like, I feel like I may have dressed slightly ridiculously even in the context of the arts high school I went to. Right, right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, um, so... For me, one of the biggest adjustments in terms of quote unquote nice clothes is remembering that especially now that I'm in my mid thirties and I am a successful businessman, quote unquote, right? Right. Um, that when I walk into a room wearing nice clothes, I read very differently than the tone in which I imagine I am presenting these nice clothes, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I think I'm presenting these nice clothes as like uh 
hey, get a load of this thing that I can do. Uh, like, isn't this fun? Like, I can, uh, I can dress up and look all fancy like a middle-aged white guy who owns a business. And I'm like, uh, and then the audience is like, look at this <laughs> asshole middle-aged white guy that owns a business. <laughs> right. Well, here, I want to pivot for a second here. So you're Jesse Thorne. You have, you're, you're hosting The Sound of Young America. You're, you know, you're making a little bit of money and it's 2008 or nine. Uh, I guess that's, that's about when, when Put This On starts or, or the, the Tumblr world kicks in. Yeah, something around then. Yeah. So what what led to that? Was it? I mean, was it just having a, a voice in in this world? But I mean, I I wanted I wanted to do something about clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, as I said, it's always been an interest of mine. But I thought I don't know how I could do it right as an audio thing, and I don't know enough about a video thing. Right. Um, and I had a friend named Adam Lissagor who I was, we were hanging out a lot together at the dog park. We were newish friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and Adam was working as a, he was working in post-production as an editor and stuff like that. His most prestigious credit to that point was that he had operated the Predator cam in one of the Alien versus Predator sequels. What? <laughs> That's awesome. But it was because, it was because uh, he was the only person on set who was short enough to fit in the Predator suit, knew how to operate the camera, but wasn't in the cinematographer's union because it was against union rules to put somebody in the Predator suit. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, so Adam was working this horrible job and, and he made, he volunteered to make a promo video for the pledge drive for The Sound of Young America because he loved The Sound of Young America. Uh And he made it. And I was like, this is so lovely. Like, this is pretty to look at, but it also is funny and light. It doesn't seem precious. Um, And one day I was just there and I was like, dude, that is like exactly how I wish there was a menswear thing. You know, like I wish there was a menswear thing that was that. Like it was like pleasant and approachable, but not unsophisticated. Right. Um. Because I felt like, I mean, the classic problem to my mind of of fashion media in general, but especially men's fashion media, is that there's only two modes, one of which is um, a kind of like rich guy contest about who can be the richest fucking fanciest dude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, like, oh, yeah, well, my cigars are made out of solid gold. <laughs> and you can't even light them on fire. Um uh, and then the other mode is this kind of like, <laughs> dude, we're just a bunch of dudes here. Yeah. Having beers and definitely not being gay. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, what, like, what about something that's like pleasant and like appreciates the idea that a guy, that a man is not precluded from enjoying aesthetics simply by being a man and doesn't have to be like this rich pinky finger extended person to appreciate aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it should be like a fun and funny, but also beautiful because I appreciate the beauty part of it. And because Adam had that skill set, I was like, dude, we should, you want to make a video of this? And Adam didn't care about menswear, but he's like, yeah, sure. And that's basically where put this on came from. Like we made one just for fun. We we had audience. He he was a podcaster as well. He had a, did a brilliant show called "You Look Nice Today." So we both had like a little bit of audience, and we raised like a thousand dollars or something 
in the beta of Kickstarter. Yeah, I remember. I was a I was a backer. Yeah, there you go. So like <laughs> yeah. we 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 had like a like there were enough people that knew who we were that could give us twenty bucks that we've got enough money to make a pilot, and it came out really nice. And we were like, oh, we could make more of these. And literally, the blog started not because I anticipated the explosion of hashtag menswear on Tumblr or whatever, but simply because I just wanted something to retain some of the audience in between us being able to generate these episodes of this complicated show that we were making essentially by ourselves. Right. Um, And then like, you know, as soon as we started, as soon as I started doing the Tumblr, um, uh, the blog, it was very popular. And I was like, oh, this is the first time I've ever done something successful. (laughs) It was the first time I had ever done something that felt like it had momentum that I was not generating through tireless effort. Right. (laughs) I mean, the the interesting thing about Put This On, so to me, as a fan and someone who who is trying to find something, uh, out there. And I mean, yeah, you're right. And that's the thing. Like there, there really wasn't any type of simple show, um, that, or like web series at the time that could be about basics and also where you can ask questions about it. I mean, cause I think, you know, you, you went and you did videos. Um, I mean, you talked about denim, you talked about shoes, you went, I think you visited, uh, at one point you went to London and you visited tailoring houses, but the feel and the vibe of all of put this on when it was kind of birthed on the internet, it was complete. Like you had a logo and you had a brand. I mean, I feel like everyone else at the time that was trying to do this had a Vistaprint business card and they put like CEO on it, you know? And it's like, it's really just you, (laughs) but, um, I mean that, and that was so, I don't know. It, it felt like an actual news channel and a channel. And it's kind of funny, you know, hearing this sort of wizard behind the curtain story at, you know, about put this on because now, you know, put this on has, yes, it's this, you know, uh, it is a blog. Uh, you know, I, I guess now technically it's called a blog about dressing like a grown up, Right. But right. there you've kind of also helped groom these, uh, young and younger writers, uh, like Derek Guy, who is one of my favorite writers. Cause he writes like a computer scientist with, with uh, men's clothing. And then also people like Pete Anderson from the X style forum days. I mean, it's kind of where people go to hang out and, and also learn about like the basics and not feel like an idiot for asking those questions. Yeah. I mean, like our goal was, and is, you know, like there are these things that are like, we'll t- We'll teach you, I'm not going to name any names of things, but like, sure. We'll teach you how to tie a tie or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And like, they're just the worst. <laughs> just, you know what I mean? Like, they're just the fucking worst. Yeah. Like, they're so like, they always have that quality uh, that just like assumes that you're just the most pathetic human being on earth. Yes. In the interest of making you not feel worried that you're that you're either basically being gay for being interested in it or um or that you're like a totally useless you'll never be James Bond unless you know this, right? Right. Um and God, I just hate it. And then there's 
And then the only other alternative is this kind of lifestyle brand stuff that's solely about creating a selling environment for luxury brands. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, like a, like editorials about watches, you know? <laughs> like just... Yeah. And I like watches. Like, I'm not putting down watches, even luxury watches. No, but just it's like fine. the thing where it's just like a bunch of... A bunch of like... Uh, uh, a, a bunch of photographs of 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 a Rolex lying on top of a pile of cigars, you know? Yeah, yeah. And our goal was, I felt like we could have some insight into things that was actual, like have, be smart about it, um, and present the regular basic stuff without it being a big deal, <laughs> like without being a dick about it, basically. Yeah. And that was pretty much, it has always been the kind of the put this on brand. And it's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to, that voice is just like, you know, it's the same as like, what's the voice of Maximum Fun, my podcast company, or what's the voice of, of Bullseye, my public radio show? Like, it's just what I wanted to see in the world. Um, you know, and I think because fashion media particularly is so warped by its need to be a luxury selling environment Mm -hmm. um you know the big magazines i mean there's every month you know gq and esquire publish great stuff but um you know those big magazines and and you know watch websites and all that stuff is so driven by um is so driven by it needing to be a good place to put a Tom Ford advertisement. Yeah. Um, and I say that as a guy who likes Tom Ford, it's not about putting down Tom Ford. Um, that we thought we could do it another way. And like one of the nice things, you know, one of the nice things about the fact that we started from Kickstarter, I think, and grew out of a, an audience supported podcast network Mm -hmm. was that, we were doing a thing where we always knew that our loyalties were to the audience, that we were serving the audience. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about accumulating buyers for advertisers. And we have advertisers and we're, and I can, am grateful for them. And I think they do great on our website and everything. Um, but our loyalties are always to the audience in a way that you cannot depend upon in most fashion media. Um, to be perfectly frank. No, no. I, so, I so like that is, I mean, there's people who do that well and people who do that poorly. There's people who have their loyalties to the advertisers, but still make something that's worth consuming. But, um, you know, like that was, that was what we wanted to do. Just make a regular fun, interesting thing for people who are interested in this, whether or not they were super obsessive over it, give some actual insights into the kind of cultural context and importance of clothes, make an argument for the importance of clothes and aesthetics. Yeah. And do it in a, do it in a way that was, you know, that had a genuine smile to it. Yeah. No, well, it's, it's pretty incredible. And I mean, it's definitely something that, and Un, you know, un, unfortunately, there are quite a few of the hashtag menswear era, you know, blogs and sites that have just died. And I think 
if anything, put this on has continued to just flourish and stick around. And I mean, I think it's because of the voice that you've used and and the fact that it's always remained approachable. So, I mean, congratulations on that. It's it's really nice. Thank you. Um, one of the last things I want to mention, which you already mentioned. So you have kind of evolved from having your own radio show to also having your own network and podcast network, which, you know, I mean, you have the uh, Judge John Hodgman, uh, which I think a lot of people end up knowing him as the the Mac and PC guy, even though he's a great comedian who's done tons of things on The Daily Show. Um, I mean, you have tons and tons of shows that are on your at-large uh, Maximum Fun podcast network. What, like, how did that start? Like, how how do you, you know, what makes you think, hmm, I'm going to start a podcast network? I mean, basically what happened is I was living in San Francisco. Uh, I had a job. Okay. I was doing The Sound of Young America. Now, my wife got into a better law school in L.A. than San Francisco. We moved to L.A. And I got a couple months worth of uh, rent paying freelance work okay um not rent not rent paying in the sense that i I think it was like a thousand bucks a month or something right of freelance work for three months and i thought i'm not going to try and get a job in la i'm going to figure out how to do this and we you know we also had some law school loans for my wife so like we had a little bit of fallback okay like the two of us living together in koreatown in la in a one-bedroom apartment we wasn't an expensive lifestyle. <laughs> and I just thought I'm not going to get a job. So I'm going to figure this out. And so essentially there was no way to rely on advertising. So at the time on podcasts, it was, would have been hopeless. So I was like, I'm going to run this sort of like a public radio station. Um, this was before Kickstarter or Patreon existed. Yeah. So I set up with PayPal, a recurring donation system, and did pledge drives. And I figured if I'm doing pledge drives, I should have a sort of system of shows, not just one show, um, to kind of deepen people's connection. And, oh, look at this. I'm in L.A. and my friend Jordan from my college radio days lives in L.A. and that's why we weren't doing the show together. Let's start a comedy show together. Um, And so we started Jordan Jesse Go. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm friends with this sketch comedy group, Casper Hauser. I'm going to produce sketch comedy uh, podcast for them. Um. And I just sort of fit these pieces together and it turned into a thing. And then I was like, wow, I built this system. I should extend this to the pe- these people that I like who might not have the time uh, or the inclination to build this system up for themselves, but are making content that is worth donating to. So like Stop Podcasting Yourself, I think, was the first show that we added to the network. And it's still going. In mm-hmm. fact, I l- was listening to it on my way to work this morning. Um, and they were a really brilliantly funny show that fans of ours were fans of. And I listened to it. I was like, man, this is a great show. And I reached out and I said, Hey, do you guys want to like be part of this? And they were like, yeah, that sounds great. And I, we set up a, basically a revenue sharing system that we use in basically the same form to this day for a lot of our shows that are independently produced. And we just sort of built it one by one. I mean, I didn't expect that our, our two biggest shows these days are a show called My Brother, My Brother and Me and a show called The Adventure Zone, both of which are hosted by these three brothers from West Virginia called the McElroy Brothers. Yeah. And, you know, when I added them to the network, I, I did it because I enjoyed their show. 
But I didn't do it because I expected them to have smash hit podcasts. I just thought this is a cool show. I really like this. I want to be part of nurturing this. I sincerely like I would have been I would have been as happy with an audience of 10,000 as with an audience of hundreds of thousands. Um, and it just worked out to be the latter. Uh, but mostly what it was about was I had built this infrastructure and I wanted to help other people who were in my position. Um, and it worked like I didn't know that it would work or anything. I just (laughs) thought, I just thought I got to figure out how to make $15,000 a year because otherwise I'm going to starve. So it was like, I get to $15,000 a year. And then from there, sky's the limit, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, I, I, w- I sort of, we've sort of folded people in as we've seen opportunities to do that. And in the last few years, um, as the scale has grown to the point where we have actual capital to invest in things, we've started building new things that aren't just dependent on me working for free. <laughs> which was our previous model of building new things, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Jordan Jesse Go, The Sound of Young America, and Judge John Hodgman were all built on the premise that uh, uh, Jesse will work for free. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and we do a show called International Waters that was also built on that premise. Oh. <laughs> but, um, but like, eventually, now we're at the point where when we start a show, we can pay the hosts of the show right from the beginning, even though we're not really making that much money from the show for the first uh, couple of years. Wow. Um, so, you know, we're not paying, we're, nobody's getting rich, but uh, people are getting paid. And like, we have an office with a dozen people who work here and they all make a living and get uh, health insurance. That's awesome. Um, That's really awesome. So, yeah, so it's it's been a sort of, you know, it's crazy like I'm I'm 36, so it's been it's been uh, 17 years that I've been doing this. And it there was no point there was no turning point, there was no watershed. It really was one foot in front of the other for 17 years. Um half of that time was spent just assuming that I would live bare, just above the poverty line forever. <laughs> Um, I waited to have children until I seemed pretty confident. I felt pretty confident that I could make, uh, that my, between the, my wife and I, we could make, you know, $60,000 a year. There you go. <laughs> uh, um, uh, which seemed like enough to make sure that we could consistently feed them and, and pay rent in Los Angeles or whatever. <laughs> but like now I own a house, you know? That's awesome. That's, that's incredible. So, I mean. I, uh, to be clear though, I don't own the house outright. I have a mortgage on the house. <laughs> Oh yeah, you, you, unfortunately, you weren't able to, to swoop in with the the, the giant the money bag, the all cash just, offer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, my house has a money pit that I bathe in uh, at night, <laughs> like Scrooge McDuck. Right. But I spent it all on the gold doubloons that fill that pit. Oh so yeah. See, yeah. <laughs> they don't take pieces of eight at the bank for mortgage payments. I have to pay with dollars, so <laughs> I don't own it outright yet. Um, so one of the last things I want to talk about is, so now that you have created, you know, maximum fun, which is obviously, it's not like it happened overnight. I mean, you've been working on it for years. Do you see or or think that max fun is always going to stay within the audio show and then the live show that you do? I mean, just 
for for listeners' background, I mean, a lot of these podcast shows also tape live in their events. Like I know that there's the 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 Judge John Hodgman show coming up in New York where you can go and it's recorded live. But do you see yourself leaving the audio medium and maybe going back into video like you did with Put This On or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I I think that, um, you know, our first goal is and will always be to have a long-term, sustainable, uh, audience-supported enterprise, Mm -hmm. right? Like, first and foremost, you know, we're doing this so that you know, every piece of our business is built not for the reasons that like a startup built, like we're going to take a swing at exponential scale growth. Uh, but rather it's the, it's the poor person's version of that, which is, uh, we are always going to protect against going uh, out of business. So we'll just take small steps every, every month and get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Right. And because because video production is much more expensive than audio production, um, you know, it's it's always a much bigger swing. But we've produced video, I've worked in television as talent. Um so I I've I hosted a TV show and um I've done other I've I've acted on camera. What? Um I was on <laughs> uh, I've acted on camera but I don't want to overstate my resume here. Okay. <laughs> I was on one episode of Comedy Bang Bang as an actor though and I uh, did a local television commercial once in San Francisco. Oh, sick. um but I mean I've also done like talking head things on TV and stuff. Um but you know I think definitely we're looking towards and currently developing um kind of intermedia stuff. So an example would be um, you know, a lot of our talent work in television, so we're working with developing stuff for our talent and with our talent, mm-hmm. um, developing and licensing our our show concepts for other media, um, getting people book deals. Um, my my wife uh, and her uh, co host they do a show together called One Bad Mother. They they just had a book that came out, and they uh, they also have a a live show coming up in New York that's a book party. Oh, nice. And and so like we're looking at everything. Like I don't think that it is the medium that defines what Max Fun is so much as it is the the tone. Mm-hmm. Um that it is this idea of of being uh smart and funny and fun uh and inquisitive and wanting to make the world a better place that defines what max fun is more than it is just people talking into microphones. Um, I mean, I love audio as a medium and it has great advantages like that. It's involves relatively small capital outlays. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I also love making videos and stuff and I love writing. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, one of the great pleasures of doing put this on for so many years has been when I have an idea of something I want to write about, I can write it for put this on. You know, yeah, but I mean, I have a lot of interest. I mean, like one of the great pleasures for me of put this on is that we have a shop, and so when I can go to the flea market every weekend and buy uh vintage stuff and then sell it yeah. <laughs> instead of hoarding it and going broke, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling, <laughs> or like, and you know, I mean, I even do you know we do uh like right now I'm working on um I'm working with an artist friend who is a friend of mine through Max Fun. Um, and we're working on designs for a series of baseball caps inspired by, 
um, actually inspired by a cabin that I bought in uh, the Southern Sierra. So, um, you know, we're, we're working on this line of baseball caps and I've learned, you know, I've designed some other baseball caps for put this on. I'm like, you know, as long as I keep the production run modest, uh, we can sell them and, and make a little money. It's not like we're getting rich again. Yeah. Um, it's not designed to go into, uh, every target in America or whatever, although target holler at me. Um, (laughs) but, but like, uh, it's a, it's something that I enjoy doing. And I think like, is a, is a contribution to the world in some way and, uh, and that we can make it sustainable, you know? Nice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, cause I know that in, in the past that you have, have done scarves and pocket squares and you did a hat once on, on put this on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because there are sites and there are companies that kind of do merch and like, you know, it's air quote merch where it's just kind of bad, but I mean, the stuff that, uh, you've, you've produced in the past has always been really nice. So. Yeah, I mean, like when we do when we make stuff, like we sh- we we have a pocket square. We sell pocket squares at putthisonshop.com, but then we also have a pocket square subscription service, and like they're made f- they're made by hand, one at a time, in Los Angeles by a person. Um, her name is Nina. <laughs> um, uh, you know, they're all handmade. You know hand rolled edges and stuff and we make them from vintage fabrics that i source like i go to textile i go to vintage textile shows and you know stuff that came out of basements in ohio or whatever you know right rayon from the 30s and 40s and um so on and so forth and um you know when we make scarves it's the same deal when we make baseball caps like our baseball caps are made by one woman (laughs) she actually doesn't live in la she lives in uh, pennsylvania i believe um, but like there, I make them with her both because I like to have a relationship with her and because, you know, we tried making them in a factory and they weren't as good. No, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like if I'm not trying to, I like, I'm not trying to sell stuff in target. So like, if I'm not going to sell it in target, if it's going to be something that we make a hundred of or whatever, I would much rather make a hundred of something that I'm really proud of that I think is really something special than not, you know, like if I'm going to make a, if I'm going to make a Boro scarf, like I would rather make it out of real Boro handmade by one person in Los Angeles out of stuff that's a hundred years old. Right. Rather than just, you know, J crew it and no offense to J crew, they do a great <laughs> job, but like, uh, rather than just J crew it and be like, uh, yeah, well we bought these four different colors of blue fabric from, uh, a supplier in China and we're going to cut them up with, uh, machines and resew them until they're <laughs> yeah. quote unquote borrow. Right? Yeah. The fake one. <laughs> so I know I'm just trying to watch the clock here and, 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 uh, be a, be a good shepherd of your time here, but I want to go quickly back to the turnaround and then all the podcasts that you've been doing. So in your 17 year career here of, you know, on the radio interviewing people, you've interviewed some, you know, there's Marin, Louis C.K., all these incredible people. And then now with Turnaround, you've been interviewing interviewers. Has there been anyone that you've talked to recently, maybe other than Terry Gross, into which you were just like, what the hell am I doing? Like, oh, like my notes are wrong. I don't know what's going on. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to practice in the last few years, especially, is not beating myself up ahead of time on the way in and letting what happens happen. 
um, which is not to say that I'm not preparing or anything like that, but simply being present in the moment, enjoying the experience of doing it and trusting the fact that I know what I'm doing, given that I've done it a thousand times or whatever. Right. And, um, that literally grew out of this conversation I had with my therapist maybe three years ago or something where I get chronic migraine headaches and stress is a big trigger. And I was getting headaches almost every time I did an interview, which was like a couple times a week. Oh my God. So it was a real problem. And I was like, geez, I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, what are you stressing out about? I'm like, that I'll do a bad job and embarrass myself or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, does that ever happen? And I'm like, well, I mean, no, I mean, it would not usually like embarrassing, like some go better than others, but, uh, I don't usually like bring shame to my family. Yeah. <laughs> and, he's like, and he's like, then why are you worrying about it? And I was like, oh, okay. Fair point. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> Maybe I should try not worrying about it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's work for me to do that. My natural inclination is to worry about it, but, um, uh, I've tried to let myself lower the stakes. And in fact, the turnaround was a, was a project in doing that. I mean, I was like in doing the turnaround, I'm like, I'm going to interview people about this thing that I'm really interested in. I'm not going to do, put a bunch of work into preparing and planning because I'm going to just going to trust the fact that this is the thing I know most about in the world and that I really care about all these people. Or I wouldn't have booked them on this show. And also it doesn't matter if anyone listens because I'm not getting paid for it either way. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, and I'll just use this as an opportunity to go to Larry King's house. That's right. Um, I forgot you did that in person. Yeah. I went to, I, at his house and, um, you know, in general that has worked really well and it has informed what I've been doing on bullseye, my NPR show where, and it's not just a, I mean, like even something like, um, like I interviewed John Waters recently mm -hmm. and John Waters is everything you wish John Waters would be. I mean, he's just the most delightful man in the world. Like the mo literally maybe the most charming person. And I had interviewed him before and found that to be the case. And I had, I was interviewing him about this wonderful book that he wrote, uh, that was essentially a transcript of a very moving and inspirational commencement speech that he gave at, I want to say RISD. And might have been Carnegie Mellon or something. But um, there was this whole part in it about trigger warnings and safe spaces, right? And he was against them. Mm -hmm. And I am in favor of them. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to talk to him about that. Like the stakes don't have to be high. I don't have to be an asshole to talk about that. And I can gain edification from talking to him about it, you know? And maybe he can right. too. And he was kind of sick and tired and, uh, when he came in. And so he was, God bless him, kind of giving me the, he was kind of giving me the road show because that was a little easier for him, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't resent because he's, you know, he, he, he does this for a living and it's hard. Um, and he's, you know, the man is also 70 years old or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I asked him about that cause I was, to, and, and it was something that normally I would be scared to ask somebody about, even though I've been doing this a long time. I mean, I usually interview people that I like because I like them and I'm not going to be a jerk to them unnecessarily, but this is an important thing. And I wanted to know what he thought about it. And, uh, you know, I talked to him and I mentioned, you know, there's a trauma survivor in my life, which is my dad, who's a combat veteran. And he went to business school and 
I would love it if, if somebody was going to show combat sequence from Band of Brothers and they knew that there was a combat veteran in the room uh, that they would say, just so you know, we're going to show some graphic depictions of combat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you know, and we're also both men. And when some astonishing portion of women have survived sexual assault, you know, something like, you know, something between, a, you know, a 20% and half or something. I don't remember what the exact number is. Um, and you're in a classroom with 50 people. That means there's probably 10 people who have, who have been traumatized by sexual assault. And maybe it's not such a bad thing to give them a heads up. Yeah. You know, that's what a trigger warning is. Yeah. You know, or maybe you're at, maybe you're a black person at, uh, uh, at a school that's, you know, I went to UC Santa Cruz. It's a public school. It's pretty diverse, but it's still only, you know, maybe 10% African-American or something. Mm Mm-hmm. Five, between five and ten percent African American. If I was a black, if I was a black kid, if I was nineteen years old and I was at UC Santa Cruz, you bet your ass I would want there to be a black house. Sure, you know, like just a place where I don't have to constantly explain myself and my cultural uh, uh, associations and context. You know, mm-hmm. like just and that's what a safe space is. You know, yeah. And we and it was a really good moment on the show that I talked to him about this and, you know, I mean, you could say challenged him about this, but I wasn't being a jerk about it. And so that kind of thing has been happening. I felt more, I felt safer to kind of go there, whether it's conflict or emotion or things like that, which was the thing that in the past I might have avoided in the interest of keeping things intellectual or abstract. Right. Um, uh, theoretical. Um, and I think it makes things more vivid. And that was my, that was probably, but I think that was the thing that I had the hardest time with before. And the thing where I was most likely to have a hard time. And like, in terms of like famous people and stuff, I've met a lot of famous people now of various amounts of famous. I mean, like I'm much more likely to meet an Ian Mackay from Fugazi type famous person than George Clooney type famous person. But I've also met a fair number of George Clooney type famous people for my show, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, I've also talked to a fair number of like Paul Rubens, who's Pee Wee Herman. Like that's the, you couldn't find a more personally important person to me than that person. Yeah. And what I have found is that all of them are human beings. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's true. Like you can just talk to them like a person and it's fine. And they're just a person like they're a person, and, but they are also a person who made some really cool stuff. Yeah. You know, like then it's fine to acknowledge that they made some wonderful things or that they're, that they have something brilliant about them. You know, like George Saunders, the the writer, like I admire the shit out of that man, not just because he's a brilliant worker, but because his work comes from an amazing and very deep, kind of beautiful emotional place and uh that's cool like i can just i can admire that without being chris farley on the chris farley show right (laughs) um because i understand that these people are also people like i am a people yeah um you know and like 
I think most people who are in that position are just grateful to talk to somebody like a person, you know? They're all chose public life, you know? Yeah. There's the occasional, very occasionally, there's like a musician who is uncomfortable expressing themselves in other ways. But, you know, for the most part, these are people who talk for a living as a significant part of their work. So, like, the odds it's going to be a disaster are really low. So, you just just kind of treat them like a person and be genuinely curious. And if you actually care, they're just glad you care. Just in the same way that I am, gl- like, I am honored that you invited me on your show because you like the work that I do. Like, to me, that's really cool. Like, that's awesome. I also like the work that I do. That's why I do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we have that in common. That's great. You're probably great. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, so, it's true. Um, that really makes a big difference. Like there's that like don't meet your heroes thing. But like I would say like don't have heroes who are you heroes for dumb reasons. <laughs> like maybe if I interviewed Willie Mays on my show, I don't know, Willie Mays might be a jerk, you know. Well, the thing that I admire about him has nothing to do with who he is as a person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's because he was a beautiful baseball player and that's a completely different thing with from being a good person. Um even in that situation, most people are good and interesting in some way. So you still have nine out of 10 chances. But like if I interview George Saunders because I love and admire his work, his work is an expression of what kind of person he is. Yeah. So if you can't find something worthwhile about someone whose work you like if that will at least carry you through an hour, it's on you. <laughs> Like I've had so few bad experiences over many years that I've just come to decide that probably most of the kind of like grumpy uh, feature writers who complain about someone being a real asshole, it's actually just that like it was a shitty situation that that the writer probably didn't handle handle that well. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the so in uh, in a previous career, I worked as a stylist for a bit, and there was a relatively high profile person that I was working with and I was, you know, showing him some different clothes and different options that we had. And I was like, you know, and I would wear something like this and he's like, I don't know, man, I can't pull that off. And I was like, dude, you're a movie star. I was like, you're an actual (laughs) movie star. You can, you can pull off anything you want. And he was like, seriously, you could just tape a chicken to a Dallas Cowboys baseball cap. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd be like, the new shit is chickens taped to Dallas Cowboys baseball caps. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I, I guess, I mean, okay. He's like, Dude, I just don't want anyone to make fun of me. And I think in a way that, you know, while that's in some ways kind of sad to hear, I was also kind of inspired by that. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, because I, I deal with that too when I, you know, when I put something on and I'm hoping that there's not enough Snickers that, you know, that are going to happen right behind me as I walk down the street, but you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, my, my feeling about that kind of shit is, you know, famous people are also people. They have this exact same issues. Yep, It's not the only difference is there's more people telling them that they suck. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) That's true. Especially in the age of social media, just more people telling them that they suck. Oh, God, yeah. They're just grateful to talk to a nice person that cares. Yeah. Everyone likes talking about the things. Everyone likes talking about the part of their own lives that they care most about. Yeah. 
You know, no, like that's people true. don't become actors that don't care about acting. I just sort of fell into five years of fruitless auditions that were emotionally crushing rejections and then accidentally became a movie star. I don't know how it, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> all the people who do this, people who create things for a living, like everyone has to go through so much misery to do it. The only reason to do it is if you really, really care about it, you really like it. Like, and and everyone is most interesting when they're talking about the thing they care about the most and are are deeply passionate about the most and for most people like they make their work most most creative people which is the people that I interview usually they make their work because they're moved by a uh, a personal passion of some kind you know right right well First off, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to come on and, and doing this. This was really special to me, and this was a lot of fun to, to not just, you know, get to know you better, but, you know, hear more about, like, how you got to where you got and the fact that, yeah, you're, you're, you're normal like me, too. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, thank you so much. Thanks again. This was a lot of fun. Of course. I'm glad to do it anytime. Thank you for thinking of me. You've been listening to Blamo. This episode was edited by Jacob Singleton. If you like what you heard, leave a review. It helps what others know and discover the show. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast, or send me an email at jeremy at We'll see you next week.